Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm talking today with Jared Stacey, coming all the way from Aberdeen, Scotland. But as we've seen, you're not from Scotland originally, but I would say welcome, Jared, to Mindship Podcast, first of all. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Clint. So where are you from originally? You're not from Scotland. You don't sound Scottish. I'm not, no. Uh, so originally, I'm from uh, Tampa, Tampa Bay area in Florida. Uh, right. So St. Petersburg, particularly. Uh-huh. Um, but I've lived, uh, did some time in New Orleans uh, and had my education there. And then also uh, lived for a while just south of D.C. in Virginia. So what brought you to Scotland? Because obviously we talked a little bit before we hit record. We have a kind of a similar story. We both brought our families over here to the U.K., both to pursue a doctoral program. Is that what brought you over to the U.K. was to do your Ph.D.? It was. It was. Uh, And it was something that we'd always talked about for a very long time. Uh, The spaces that we were in, uh, evangelical, uh, almost fundamentalist spaces, depending on how you use that word, uh, it, it kind of created a, a crisis uh, for us where we, and particularly me, I was a pastor, particularly had to sit down and kind of ask this question that comes out of those crisis moments where there's a, mo- a moment where, you, where you've you been trying to change things from the inside and then you realize very quickly that um, the the system is changing you. Uh, and that's a, a, a good kind of crisis to be in because it kind of provoked this this real existential, what are we going to do? Uh, and so continuing a theological education was was always something that we had talked about. Moving abroad was something that we'd always talked about. And so um, as much as getting a PhD was kind of the, um, the the catalyst, there were a whole lot of things that were very attractive about living abroad, moving with our family, our kids, and, and taking time away. And it's been very helpful, um, I think, in that way. It really is. Yeah, I can identify on basically every level yeah. that you just talked about. I came out of the pastor in the Portland, Oregon area. I was burned out. Our church closed down. That's a whole nother story. But yeah, we we needed a break in a big way or bigly, as Trump would say. No, <laughs> but we did. And moving abroad was a huge thing. And now we've been here in this country, 17 going on 18 years. My kids love it here. We've gotten our citizenship. We're never going back to America. We're definitely expats, you know, even though I'm divorced, yeah. my ex-wife, she got her citizenship, you know, so I can totally resonate with everything you're saying. Yeah, well, I might have some questions about what it takes to stay. <laughs> so, well, let's keep. Yeah, it's harder on a student visa, that's for sure. It took ten years. Yeah. That's the basic answer: is you have to be in the country ten years before you can apply for uh, indefinite leave to remain and then citizenship. But yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. It's a long yeah. journey, a lot of money, but it's well worth it, I would say. But yeah, so what's your goal with your PhD? Do you want to get into teaching, academics? What's your end game? Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I have one. I, mean, uh, I think I. I was surprised um, in many ways to turn down opportunities uh, in order to take this one. Uh, and those were opportunities that I had spent basically my whole 20s um, thinking this is what I was going to do. Mm. And so now I'm in this place, which is a really exciting place to be, um, where you're kind of relearning uh, what you value and relearning what uh, in what direction you want to point your life. And um, and, and in realizing too, that we've already made a lot of decisions that have kind of chosen, uh, those, those directions and kind of put them on the table. So I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think one of the things that's abundantly clear about living abroad, um, and thinking about going back to the States is this question that keeps coming to my mind of where, where is there a recourse for healthy conversation in the United States for people, in the margins of, uh, the church and for people who are even in the church and on the verge of burnout, they would consider themselves maybe not deconstructing, but maybe committed, but have questions. I, I don't, I, I don't know the categories that we want to use, but my question has always been more so as we've been over here is where's the recourse to kind of hit a pause button for the United States and for Christians in the United States? Because when you move out and you, you begin to do communion and have communion with other people, the situation in the United States just it gives a clarity that is very difficult to come by when it's so immediate. So I, I don't know where we'll end up. I don't know what position um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, desiring. I, I don't know. I probably should have a more concrete idea, but I'm just trying to finish my PhD and I'm, I'm fine with that right now. 
get through it. That's a lot of work. Yeah. You've got a Viva yeah. coming up. I remember that going through all that experience. That was a hellish nightmare, you know. So <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of work. the honesty. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, it. Sorry about that. No, no, uh, it's all good. <laughs> I had to do a lot of rewrites. Yeah, the long that's a whole nother story there. But yeah, I, I, I identify with what you're saying because when you live in another country, then you start to look at America from across the pond as it were, you think, My God, your perspective changes. My two daughters, you know, they they see America now in a completely different light than we did when we were living there. And every time I go back to visit, I'm always struck by the prevalence of evangelicalism everywhere. There's a church on every street corner. It's so intertwined in the political sector, churches and government and politics and everything. Whereas in Europe, you just don't have that. It's right. such a stark difference, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think that's something that makes the 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 persecution narratives all the more paradoxical. Mm. Uh, this idea that um, that Christians in America are always facing some extreme form potentially of of um, of persecution, or that Christianity is in crisis or in peril, um, that's that's a really potent idea. Um, but but it's also paradoxical because Christianity has is more prominent and more saturated in public in the United States certainly than it is here in the UK. Um, and maybe in different ways. Uh, there's a depth here to it in the UK that I feel like the the United States doesn't have. But there's a lot of comparisons we can get into later. I just oh yeah, uh, the the distinctions are 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 fascinating when you take some time to talk with people and have proximity with people outside of maybe your immediate community that you've always been used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny too because how how do we meet? We met on Twitter the other day. Yeah. It was maybe yeah. a month ago or something. I right. think you had a tweet that kind of went viral a little bit. You yeah, noticed your profile. You talk about your research is into the Christian right, the conspiracy theories, the whole Dominion theology. And I thought, my God, this guy is right up my alley. I have to talk to him. So we came to, to know each other through Twitter. Right. And that community kind of facilitates for those who can't leave, right? This was, Being able to come over here and do a PhD in the UK, that, again, that's a recourse and an option that some people, many people don't have. And so I'm aware of that. Um, but it becomes Twitter and the social media becomes really crucial for helping cultivate this kind of awareness that there are other perspectives and other relationships, other people uh, that you can develop this sort of digital proximity with that, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you know, the last three years have like cashed in on some real relationships mm. through this kind of thing and people that we still talk with. So, um, you know, yeah, that, that, that particular tweet, um, was, I mean, I, I was kind of surprised at the traction it did get, but it was focused particularly on this trend, uh, to, I mean, modernity is always haunted by the Nazis and by Hitler. And it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine to invoke Hitler or the Nazis, um, without really understanding the irrepeatable historical context that was, 1930s Germany. Not everyone's Bonhoeffer and no one ever will be Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer was Bonhoeffer. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's all a whole host of things to go into with that. But I'm, I was pleased that we were able to kind of make that connection. Yeah. That because, um, you know, not only because of the personal similarities we shared, but uh, particularly what you're doing with this podcast, I think is so valuable for people who are looking for ways to talk and name things that perhaps before they, they'd only been able to feel uh, in a, in a very, um, uh, uh, provocative way, but in a way that couldn't exactly be described. And I think this is some really valuable work that you're putting out there for people. It is. Yeah, I think so, because that's the feedback I get. And it's funny enough, I don't use my doctorate at all in my professional life, except for the fact that if I, I pour all my effort and energy into this podcast using the research skills that I learned yeah. while I was in Bible college, seminary, and, and at university. You know, so it's kind of ironic, isn't it? But I'm yeah. a teacher. I'm wired to be a teacher. That's what I do for a vocation. I teach construction skills, though. You know, so it's it's a million miles away in a way. But ironically, yeah. I'm still doing. I view it as sort of pastoral work. Yeah, I've had this conversation with many ex pastors, and we say, yeah, the, we still feel like in a weird way we've taken the spiritual component out, but I'm still pastoring people. I'm mentoring, you know, young guys and teaching them how to do, you know, carpentry skills and all that. So I do get a lot of satisfaction out of that. It does remind me a lot of you know, being a pastor of a church, but I don't have to be beholden to, you know, a congregation, yeah, yeah, yeah. politic. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and I, it was funny. I'm, I was just reading, uh, and it's not like I do this casually, but I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a researcher right now. This is when I live and breathe, but I was reading Kierkegaard mm -hmm. who today described the difference between, uh, living by something and living for something. 
And I mean, I, that's, that's big. I feel like that's exactly what you're describing is you yeah. know, for, for a lot of us who were in the pastorate for a very long time, the distinction between living by uh, the, the, the pastoral ministry and living for it mm-hmm. uh, or what it, what it actually means and entails are, are two radically different things. But when they get confused, um, then there, there is a real problem that I, that Kierkegaard was, was taking issue with the difference between state functioning Christ, Christendom mm-hmm. uh, and this dominionist kind of way of approaching uh, theology and the church and the state together and what it would mean for Christianity to be free and for mm-hmm. people to actually encounter Jesus rather than just uh, apply the name Christian or evangelical to them when it might not actually be uh, a matter of faith. It could just be a matter of belonging to a particular cultural moment, which I think still has a lot of potency for the way we talk about the states today. Mm-hmm. It's funny, yeah, because here's Kirk, he's writing in a, a Danish context, isn't he, where the church had hegemony over society, and he's trying to come up with a new way to you know sort of preach the gospel in the where they've heard it all before, you know. Right. So it's it does. There's some parallels in there to American context, I think, where he's talking about. Yeah, we've heard this all before. It's blah blah blah, you know. But then, that, like I said, you got this dominionist piece, which is sounds like that's kind of the area of your research. I mean, you talk about we talked before we hit record, so you're looking at conspiracy theories, uh, QAnon, and evangelicalism, Trumpism, all this stuff, and it all so- somehow comes together around January six. You were saying, right? Yeah. So that what I'm attempting to do is basically ask the question, what would it mean for the church to talk about January 6th um, outside of just as a political event? It was a political event. I don't want to diminish that. Um, But there was, I I, I noticed this, uh, and I'm sure maybe you did, that in in the aftermath of January 6th, the conversations in a lot of Christian circles were that we're not them and they're not us. Um, Almost, and I can say this to live in Scotland, a no true Scotsman kind of approach. (laughs) Uh, that, that if they were real Christians, you know, they wouldn't have been there. Um, I don't, I, let me, let me say two things to that. And then I'll talk a little bit about what my research is planning to do with it is the the first thing being, um, we can't judge who the real Christians are. And number two, uh, if we have neighbors who are not confessing Christians, uh, or who, uh, practice a, a different faith, even, uh, how would we expect them to differentiate us quote unquote as Christians from them who are carrying the cross uh, and a hangman hangman's noose and the Confederate flag up the Capitol steps. I I wouldn't ask anyone to have the wherewithal if they're not a Christian to distinguish between well those are the bad Christians and these are good. I, that's not a that's not a helpful apologetic. So what would it look like for the church to talk about January sixth, particularly as a an apocalypse, and not not meaning the end of the world, um, but really meaning an unveiling, really meaning a revealing, uh, in this case, in this particular case of evangelicalism. Um, I think that January 6th was the success uh, of a particular brand, particular manifestation of evangelical Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how many even how many people there were actually evangelicals or not. The fact is, the more you look at evangelical history, the sort of people who did show up who might not have thought of themselves as bona fide evangelical Christians, evangelicalism has done business, <laughs> uh, yeah. maybe sometimes literally, with white supremacy and with those groups uh, throughout its history. And that may, that might be um, at first jarring to those who are still within that tradition. Uh, it might sound like an accusation, but what I'm going to maintain is that we have nothing to fear in being honest about what repentance might look like. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to talk about these things as a practicing Christian, uh, as someone though who probably wouldn't describe themselves as an evangelical in a casual conversation in the United States or maybe even in the UK, um, but to be honest enough to approach this as a church that's trying to be faithful, that uh, has a witness to make, and that January 6th made a witness, uh, the question is to what? And, uh, and so those are some of the questions that I'm picking up. Mm, there's a lot in there. How did we get to January 6th, though? Because when I saw the event, we were mentioning before we hit record, I did an episode just after it happened. What struck me was the confluence of Trumpism, QAnon, conspiracy theories, far-right militias, as well right. as Christian nationalism. Those were the sort of four major strands that I saw, but that didn't happen overnight. you got the Dominion right. theology piece, the Christian right coming into it, 
Trump Trump was president for four years. Before that, we saw this huge swell, uh, upswell of evangelicals voting for Trump, eighty percent, eighty one percent. You know, but right. that wasn't the the beginning of the story. Surely, I think your research goes back into the history, doesn't it? It does. Um, one of the one of the proto evangelicals, right? An evangelical before there was such a thing uh, was named Cotton Mather. Uh, he's back in the Puritan era. Oh yeah, right? before the United States, and his ministry was just before what a lot of historians kind of describe as the founding event for evangelicalism, which is called the Great Awakenings. And if you're familiar oh, yeah. with and I know you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, yeah, George Whitfield. If you're familiar with like the QAnon lore, the, it it has picked up the Great Awakening to describe its prophetic, you know, claims and predictions. And so, um, but Cotton Mather is an interesting um, person to start with, if only because he was contracted. He was a minister. He was contracted though by the government of the the Massachusetts Bay Colony to pen the official account of the Salem witch trials. Now. It's a fascinating comparison to compare maybe January 6th to the Salem witch trials. But my point is to say that there was a time in in American history uh, or proto-United States history where pastors were giving official political accounts for a, for a, a major event. Mm. And Cotton Mather was part of perpetuating uh, the Salem witch trials. He oversaw hangings, all those sorts of things. So it's it's definitely a, how do I protect the the puritan church how do i protect these people and so i start with him because cotton mather is this incredible uh kind of cross-section of how what we all associate with conspiracy theories now you know this idea of um hidden secret interpretations of these complex chaotic events um the theological origin of that is angels and demons and how the Church of High Christendom would explain politics uh, according to, well, that was a demon. And, and, and oh, these, these were angels. Uh, and so Mather does that with the Salem Witch Trials. And, and so starting with him moving all the way through evangelical history from the Illuminati uh, to uh, the communist conspiracies uh, at the turn of the century and the mid-20th century to today, they've always hung within evangelicalism. And so... There's a sense, there's a way in which January 6th was a feature, um, was always kind of built into the DNA. Um, and and the way that that comes about is, is paints a very interesting picture of an evangelicalism that tends to ally itself with other organizations, other groups in order to accomplish its purposes. So I'm contending... There's all these immediate causes, um, but I'm also contending that evangelicalism has made these theological moves throughout its history that have always made white evangelicals in particular a people who are always on the look uh, to, to prevent, for example, slave insurrections mm-hmm. uh, to, to protect this kind of this this kind of hegemony uh, over the United States. And so it's it's a long varied history, but there's theology that I'm trying to uproot and uh, and dismantle in order to diffuse conspiracy theory, um, which I think I'm trying to do something unique with that. But um, but yeah, that's that's kind of a, a sketch of the, the sort of work that I'm doing and and how characters and these people from a, a long time ago, in some ways, prefigure or contribute to a lot of the things that we recognize, but maybe can't name in an event we all saw and witnessed, but we haven't interpreted it in that way. And that's what I'm trying to do is interpret it theologically uh, rather than just as a social or political event that, you know, we're all still, you know, living out the consequences of in a practical sense. Absolutely. It is fascinating to study QAnon because when I went through that episode, I did another one on QAnon. And what struck me was a couple of things. One of them was the era that I lived through when I was an evangelical, the satanic panic back in the 1980s. And basically QAnon in so many ways is the satanic panic 2.0. And that was all based on conspiracy theories. You know, there was these nationwide covens of, you know, yep. pre, uh, satanic rituals and child murder and sacrifice and pedophilia and all the rest of it. Someone needed to save us from that. I, I lived right. through that. Rock music, yeah. heavy metal music was of the devil, you know, all that. <laughs> and then the other piece about QAnon now is how akin to a religion it is. You've got basically mm-hmm. like prophecies. You've got people who interpret the prophecies and explain them. It's kind of like high priests of this religion. It's very apocalyptic. They saw Trump as a messianic figure who was going right. to come and, you know, sweep everybody away and 
there was going to be the storm that was coming and all that. I thought, my God, this is straight out of Christian apocalypticism, yeah, conspiracy, yep. and that's nothing new, as you say, within Christianity for millennia, really. Right. It's oh wait, it's in. And to your point, it's all. It's it's difficult to to admit, but it's all very normative. <laughs> yeah. Um, that 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 the re like again, the readings of Revelation that we're talking about here are are you can find them in almost every era of church history. Sure. People have always read Revelation this way. And, and there's alternative readings for sure. Oh yeah. But again, what, what Q does and, and what's fascinating is that scholars of conspiracy theory. So this, the yeah, conspiracy theory theory, this is an actual, this is an actual, <laughs> it's a thing. One. It's a new thing now. It, it has to be a thing. Oh yeah. Uh, but they are now starting to talk about, and, and with this term it's called conspirituality. Right, it's it's a way to uh, talk, at least from a social science perspective, to admit that conspiracy theories are doing more than just explaining a one-off event. That, in many ways, they're providing a uh, at a at a psychological level, they're providing a a religious meaning and, and religious religious satisfaction uh, to people. Uh, and so again, when you set that in a political context where Christianity has been just so pervasive, it's really not surprising that Hugh has had the success it's had because if it is a liturgy, evangelicals recognize the liturgy subconsciously. It, it plays to what I heard in church growing up. Oh yeah. So, uh, it's the same form and function. Uh, and so that, how do I put this? That association or that that way of relating to theology is so recognizable that whatever crazy claim the conspiracy theory might be advancing, it seems legitimate because it's set right next to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I don't I don't really blame people for throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some cases because of that association because it's so potent right uh, and 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 that's that's the danger that it presents just one because there's mm-hmm. it's true I remember talking to Mike Rothschild I don't know if you come across his book on QAnon it's a really good one because he the kind of he delves into what you're talking about the the sort of science of conspiracy theory thinking. And he says, you right. know, QAnon is by far, it's it's not the first conspiracy theory that the world has seen. It won't be the last. And he goes right back into medieval times and talks about, you know, blaming the Jews for plagues and things like that. And there the, are all these Jewish conspiracy theories, you know, so they, these things have been around for centuries, haven't they? It's not a new thing, is it? People tend no. to gravitate to conspiracy theories, he says, because it explains the sort of unexplainable, the mysterious forces that are really shaping and tweaking the world. We have now a way to point the finger at them and say, aha, they're the ones behind the scenes, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, he's right. been manipulating everything. And it now makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And the growing up in a, a fundamentalist and evangelical background, certainty is sort of the byproduct that you get from buying into the particular theology that's, you know, you, you become a very certain person. I once heard someone describe evangelicals as people without questions. And I've always resonated with that because I felt like it described myself that that you could advance to a certain point of learning where you were basically you'd arrive and that level of certainty that we call theology, but it's more ideology, just fits hand in glove with the sort of immediate. Well, I need to explain this. How do I explain something that's really difficult? And so the the easy believism or the you know, hey, quick, pray this prayer and, and you have eternal life. That sort of certainty and ease can very easily be either reduced or diffused or trans whatever however you want to describe it into that that same kind of conspiratorial mold uh, and i again when i was a pastor i even i had people who explained to me and justified their belief in q by saying well i'm already a christian i already believe in conspiracy and 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 so that's how they they understood the the claims of, of christianity was as you know this is a this is an alternative belief system which, okay, we could have that conversation, but I am attacking that link with conspiracy mm-hmm. uh, in the political world and the social world, and saying, uh, no, that's that that that's where we can do some really interesting work. 
When we come back in the second half in my conversation with Jared Stacy, we're going to get into the satanic panic once again and then talk about how evangelicals are so willing to believe in conspiracy. That's going to lead us into Bonhoeffer and his view on prayer. Now, I may not necessarily agree with everything he says, but keep in mind, Jared is a good progressive Christian, so we have a really good conversation. There is a space and a place for respectful dialogue, even if we may not agree necessarily on every conclusion to the question, can evangelicalism be saved from things like QAnon and conspiracy theories and Trumpism? So it'll be interesting to see what we come up with in the second half. I just wanted to let you know what's coming up here in the next few weeks on the show. I'm working with Rachel and Molly. We've got now the recordings of what we've done. We've done a recording, a crossover episode, so we're just working on a release date. The first half is going to appear on their Cheers to Leaving show, and then the second half is going to appear on mine. I'm also in talks with my good friend David Hayward, the Naked Pastor. We're going to do an episode hopefully coming up soon. I just messaged him yesterday as I'm doing this recording, and he said, well, I can't really do it right now. I'm on my way home from Burning Man. So I said, well, that's a good enough excuse. So hopefully we'll be lining that up with David coming up soon. And then I'm also working on lining up an interview with another good friend, another ex-pastor, Tim Sledge, who, of course, wrote Goodbye Jesus. I just finished his book, Four Disturbing Questions. And it's all about really four questions that Christians should ask themselves really do if they're deconstructing. And there's some really simple answers. He talks about breaking the spell of Christian belief. And in fact, speaking of Tim, I just shared on Patreon the other day, one of his chapters from that book is called The Way Faith Works. It's a really interesting modern day sort of parable that Tim wrote. And if you want to catch that, you can go on Patreon and listen to that recording. It's really interesting. It makes you think about faith and prayer, all the things that as good evangelicals, we spent so much time, hours and months and years in prayer, dedicated to praying to God, asking for so many things. And then what was the result in the end? For many of us, like myself, we walked away from it all, never to return. In fact, speaking of walking away from it all, I'm working really hard on editing my book. It's called Baptism, Third Times a Charm, My Story of Deconversion from Christianity. And in fact, my good friend Tim Sledge is helping me edit that. And so hopefully that'll be coming out. We're looking at maybe the end of September or early October sometime in there. We'll get it out as a Kindle version, and then I'm working on a paperback version as well. So at some point here, as a podcast episode, I'm going to do a reading probably from the first chapter so you can get an idea of what the book is about, and it may make you want to go out and buy the book when it does drop. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Jared Stacy. We're going to get into the satanic panic and more on this issue of evangelicals and conspiracy theory. How does January 6th relate to it all? Trumpism, MAGA, QAnon, and all the rest of it. So let's get on back into part two. I wanted to ask about the satanic panic, as you remember. Oh, yes. Living through that. Do you remember, um, was there ever a walking back of that? No, was there, no. Ever a, <laughs> no. was there ever a moment where they said, hey, um, yeah, you're wrong. We were wrong. No, because you, like with any good conspiracy theory, you can never prove it and you can really never disprove it. You know, can I disprove that there were not nationwide covens of satanic priests and pedophiles murdering children and all the rest of it? I can't prove that, but they've never really discovered those, you know. So and I remember going to see Mike Warnke. I don't know if you've come across him, yeah. but, you know, he was part of that satanic panic. Here's a guy that was a Christian comedian claiming to be a former satanic high priest and all the rest of it. None of it was true, you know, and, and it took Cornerstone magazine to put a huge expose out on him in the early 1990s and it blew the lid off of his story. And he's never, to my knowledge, said, you know what? It was all lies. It was all BS. Right. He's just doubled down. So even a guy like Mike Warnke, who's a Christian, you know, doesn't yeah. admit he's wrong when they had every single receipt you could possibly think of, you know, and some of the books that were huge at the time have been disproven, but the authors didn't retract them, you know, yeah. so they're not going to yeah. retract QAnon now, are they? Well, and that's, and I was thinking about that earlier, um, as I was thinking about this relationship between conspiracy theory and theology is that, you know, theology is kind of its own thing. It always, it always has been. It's always insisted that you can't, um, while it engages with other disciplines, it, it will kind of say the, the only criterion that is allowed to judge me, right, is again, the, the church or God, you know, that, that it's human speech about God. Uh, and if we define theology that way, um, particularly in fundamentalist spaces, it, 
it can become if it's if it's not clear, it can be calcify right into this kind of insular community where it's it's a self-justifying operation instead of a self-critical operation which some theologians talk about theology that way but in the fundamentalist spaces that i'm familiar with uh the the theology that they espoused was anti-science it was uh you know it was this insular fundamentalist uh you know coven that is us against the world and so in that case uh, theology was not really doing it really wasn't theology it was ideology it was this kind of creating this insular community artificially hermetically sealed right uh as a way to not engage with the world and that's not theology um and so again i i was thinking about that 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 insularity and how it's so similar you know in conspiracy theory where it's uh hey i'm, I'm gonna go i'm gonna explain this away to myself well at its at its most perverse I think theology can become that for the church as well. Um, and and that that creates a whole host of relationships where it's like, hey, yeah, this this is why Christians become conspiracy theorists is is, is because they're trading on this theology that says anti-science. Um, yeah. you know, like and and when when a pandemic comes along, then we have all the pandemic conspiracy theories to account for it. And because they're oh, yeah. already they're already locked and loaded or pardon the i guess the firearm analogy but they're they are built into the system um in a way yeah it's in the dna well yeah i think there's two examples better now yeah you were saying there's two examples i could think of right off the bat as you were describing it one is creation science that's a conspiratorial type of thinking whereby they're saying those real the real truth is that god created the earth you know six to ten thousand years ago the ken ams of the world the liberal Scientists don't want you to know the truth about the way it really is. And the other thing is the Christian nationalist piece, because you got a guy like, I'm sure you've come across David Barton of Wall yeah. Builders, you know, and you oh, yeah. their website and he talks about the real true his history of America's founding fathers that the, the historians don't want you to know about. So even then it's couched in conspiratorial language. I'm here to tell you the truth that America right. was a Christian nation. They don't want you to know. And then the other one, the third example is the whole anti or the Christian defense of slavery. That's another right. one. The truth is that it was actually a Christian nation. The South was a Christian nation. Slaves were happy. You know, it's all a bunch of BS. You know, so there's another yeah. thing, and that's the liberal historians are why are you know washing all that away. Well, and that's and I think those those are. I mean, I watched the David Barton videos. Uh, I remember cringeworthy. Oh my goodness. Um, but but I also remember believing them <laughs> you know and i i know the truth yeah no i mean I, I i and again i was i was a, I was a kid oh yeah it, so it was it was You're in the it bubble was, uh it was what was offered and when you don't know anything different i you know i'd say it this way like uh history as a discipline sounds like revisionist history when you're sold a particular narrative sure and i think the difficulty with some of the things that I've I've wrestled with is cases where there are conspiracies, and that might be a surprising term. But what I, what I mean is, in order for me to be honest about doing this project, I've had to look at things like the tobacco industry when oh, yeah. the science came out that said, "Hey, yeah, smoking's bad for you," and the way that the tobacco industry hired scientists and uh, you know flooded the market with, I mean, the market flooded the market with disparaging data. Basically, one when one executive said, our, our product is now doubt, right? I mean, just a really, I mean, put Don Draper to shame, right? So cynical, just, isn't it? Yeah, an absolutely <laughs> brilliant marketing strategy. And so some of the things, and I, I bring that example up in particular, just, you know, we we can talk about Watergate and, and, and Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. We could talk about a whole host of ways that the state claims for itself this level of secrecy. And without being able to penetrate that veil, of course, people jump to conclusions and want clarity and certainty. But I still maintain like conspiracy theory is not the way to go about doing that. And that can be a, a terrifying option when essentially you feel out of control. But when you look at history and you know, hey, yeah, like people do take it upon themselves to do things that I don't have an awareness of. And what are we supposed to do in those particular circumstances? And I do think Christian theology, Protestant theology offers some viable answers that I, I'm going to include in, in my project. But 
I do think it's 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 it becomes a sticky issue when we start pathologizing people who lean this direction because then we become blind to the fact that there are historical realities like the tobacco industry, like Watergate, that we have to account for in some way. But at the same time, I'm not going around saying the election was stolen, yeah. right? Like you know, jumping on the big lie bandwagon. <laughs> no, exactly. So there's there has to be a way, and I think this is what theology offers: that there has to be a way to talk about evil, to talk about the the totality that the state claims for itself. There has to be ways to talk about these things that doesn't lead us down the path of projecting anxiety and creating narratives that make us feel comfortable. That can't be what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Um, but neither is pathologizing people uh, in that. There has to be, and you and I talked about this, there has to be a way to engage where people are provoked, but not threatened. And that's a very difficult blind, you know, that's a very difficult way to walk and to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think theology offers us a way to talk about that, that even people maybe who aren't, wouldn't consider themselves religious would find some value in and saying, Oh, like I could see how that operates or works. Yeah. We could sit at the table. Well, what's your, what's the aim of your research? Cause uh, we're sitting here talking about you proven that, okay, Christianity and a lot of the DNA is baked in with conspiratorial type of thinking. You can cite example after example, January 6th is, is a big one, isn't it? You've got, like we said, yeah. the confluence of Trumpism and evangelicalism, Christian nationalism, QAnon, and all these things coming together. Where are you going with it, though? Are you? Yeah. What's your argument? What's your thesis statement in all your research? Yeah, so I could boil it down to one sentence. Thankfully, I'm thankfully I'm at that point. Uh, that'll help you with your viva, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need that I, statement. I will give the statement, but I'd, I'll give an illustration because this is a podcast, and and you've got listeners, and yeah. uh, and I think this is worth entertaining. This is this is worth entertaining. Um, I like to ask people, what if instead of setting up the FBI around that Waco complex, they also brought in people who knew a thing or two about Jehovah's Witness theology and who knew the extremism was only extremism in the context of the particular beliefs of the Branch Davidians. That what if the government's response to Waco had been to include people who understood the theology even in an errant way, right? Because Branch Davidians were extremists. But what might have been different? And I, I bring that up because it instantly makes my point potent and clear. And and my statement is this, is that the the common ways of confronting conspiracy theory in a democratic society is to do things like, again, legislation. These are all good things. What I'm about to say, these are all helpful ways, but right. legislation, disinformation analysis, right? Looking at the scale and the scope of digital media uh, and how that's taken off in uncontrolled, you know, surveillance cap, all, all of these sorts of things. But what's lost in that is that when you confront conspiracy theories among religious or theologically constituted communities, you and gender, you start a theological crisis. Mm-hmm. And and that is experienced by people as an existential threat. That puts people's backs against the wall because not only are you asking them again, uh, this might be, this is, this is, I would cash this in and to say, if you were to challenge the someone's claim that the 2020 election was stolen, you say, no, it's not. What I'm what I'm arguing is that you are actually asking that person to change their beliefs about Jesus Christ if they're a Christian. Right. It's a big stake. Yeah, stakes are very high. And there is a direct line between what people believe in conspiracy theories and the broader faith that they might confess or a theology that might have led them to that point. And so that's that's what I'm trying to implicate. That's what I'm trying to draw out is to say that yes, theology might have had a hand in making evangelicalism hospitable. But on the other side, it can also, if done in this light, can also diffuse. So if, if it's part of the problem, it can be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I bring Waco up, if only because it kind of brings that into a crisis moment that many of us culturally are aware of. Um, but but the, when I bring it to January 6th, again, the challenge, well, what should have happened to prevent that? Right. 
yeah, right? Give me an alternative reality. Yeah, that's not that's not the Waco situation. That's something maybe entirely or totally different. But I do think there's there's ways to talk about that, and I think a lot of it comes down to what pastors are willing to speak out against and speak up for in America. Um, I think it has to do with also the ways that evangelicalism has constituted itself as a political machine. So if there's something that your listeners want to do and want to research that changed my mind about the nature of evangelicalism in America, they should go and look up the Council for National Policy. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with those. Oh, yeah. I've I've found, and it was shocking to me, because I listened to the conservative talk show guys and, you know, the Kirks and... Limbaugh before him. and But what I did not know is that, again, the Council for National Policy is a concentrated network that puts the highest denominational leaders in evangelicalism in the room with Eric Prince, the paramilitary contractor with Blackwater, puts yeah. him in the same room with Pence. And again, that sounds conspiratorial. But when the, And when certain historians talk about it, they can't help but sounding like conspiracy theorists. But my point in talking about it is, that is not a conspiracy. We are describing something that is normative for the political process in America. Either side of the aisle, you have organizations like this that concentrate resources and ideas uh, and and promote them in the public square. So I'm not I'm not here claiming oh there's this organization in the shadows that yeah. is doing shadowy organization. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. This is not Spectre. This is not James Bond that we're talking about. But I do think the nature of that organization raises questions for the church, raises questions for evangelicals um, who say, oh man, those people that stormed the Capitol weren't evangelicals. But when you look at what the Council for National Policy was talking about a year out of that election, they were already talking about the potential for it to be stolen. The ideas were there and were baked. And so again, what I'm what I'm basically claiming with that for your listeners is that the Council for National Policy is 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 a major source of propaganda for evangelical Christians in the United States, whether they realize it or not. Sure. People uh, that that work and and are a part of that do a great deal of propagandizing, and uh, and so yeah, that that changed my mind in a way to think, man, how how would evangelicalism, how would we avoid a January sixth? Well. I think we're talking about the way the the ways over the last forty years that evangelicalism has commoditized itself, has has put ideas out into culture. We're we're talking about um, the outcome, the success of a forty year movement. Sure. And wh- where do you begin to unravel that? You don't. You a lot of threads. If you're if you're a faithful Christian, all you do is repent. All you do is repent. There's <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 figure out what's what's next. W- what you need to leave, where you need to shake the dust off your feet, where you need to resist. Um, one of the th- one of the things my supervisor took issue with in a very generous way is maybe my first year here, Clint. I kept talking about repairing evangelicalism. Ah, uh, yes. And and he looked at me as uh, he goes, "Are you sure you want to say that? Are you, <laughs> sure, are you sure you want to say that?" And it was just. It was it was axiomatic for me, and it was an assumption for me. And the more I talked with him, when he said, "You know, you, you really need to maybe consider think about this apostasy," mm. and he, and then he asked me, "How might Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus be considered apostasy?" I mean that that just opened up a whole new world of possibilities for me, right? Um, and so again, I don't I don't know. Uh, for your listeners, wherever they're at and what they're grappling with, I I think the one thing that I could say is that I have learned that repairing something like this is not really, that's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Um, But as we stand and as we look out as to wh- what kind of people we want to become and need to be to meet this moment, uh, I, for myself, am not one who necessarily says, this is something that needs to be repaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that as someone who'd say, um, I'm trying to be responsible for God for that statement as a Christian, as right. a Protestant. Um, and if Protestants are anything, we're, we just say, hey, well, we can always start again. You know, we, yeah. we, can, we can always <laughs> reboot. Uh, <laughs> and, and and that's that's the God, that's the death resurrection narrative that shapes the Christian witness uh, for the last two millennia. So, um, 
you know, I, I say all that to say, you know, the, the cash it out, like, what are we supposed to do? I, yeah. Like, what, what, what could have we have done to, de- to, to prevent January 6th? I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but, but it happened. Decades in the making. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed it really to do? was. Yeah. We should have got off the Trump train a long time ago. Well, that's my question too. Who's your intended audience? Who are you trying to reach? Because I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, like you were talking about the satanic panic. I lived through that. But as you say, looking back on it now, objectively, I can say I was steeped in a culture, uh, a fundamentalist evangelical culture that taught me, you know, that the devil was real. He was actively working in the world to, to thwart the plans of God. So that was the worldview that I was absolutely raised in from right. day one. So when I'm hearing things about satanic high priests and covens and witches and ceremonies and all these things that go on, I'm, I'm primed for it. Like you said, I, I was right. already primed for it. It wasn't a stretch to go, oh, what Mike Warnke was talking about, that that's absolutely real. It happened. He's just he's he was had a miraculous conversion. Now he's out there telling the truth about what happened and spreading the gospel. You know, so these Christians today, is that what your message is to them? Because you could take a Christian who's gone to a family research council presentation or something from CNP yeah. or the family or any one of these organizations, Moms for Liberty, there's there's thousands of them. And they've been indoctrinated by that sort of conspiratorial thinking. How are they going to get off that train? That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, that's the question. I I, I stopped myself because I wanted I wanted to rush into it, but I think maybe just for the listeners too to to really sit with that. And you know, I think it's something that maybe we all see in media. We see that presented on Twitter. We we see sure. the depth of indoctrination, but then when it actually comes to like, well, what are what are we supposed to do with that? And so I, maybe I would just say two things and, and maybe one is for people who would still count themselves as Christians. And then another is for people who are kind of looking in on that to say, okay, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Cause that's, that's not me at risk of sounding uh, like a pietist. I come back to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says there are only two ways of being Christian today. And that is prayer and doing justice among human beings. And if you know anything about Bonhoeffer, you know, his, his ministry in 1930s Germany, while it can't be duplicated, it can certainly be learned from. And, uh, and I think that that statement holds a lot of water still that if Christians are a people of prayer, then we are people in communion with the divine and with the triune God. And I don't want to discount that. And if, if evangelical has done anything, it is discounted prayer, (laughs) Um, and said, you know, we can become a political machine. You don't need prayer when you have power. And prayer, I think, as a Christian, comes from a recognition that I don't have power. And so if you're talking about where to come, where to move from that, in the face of these organizations who name the name of Jesus, the most radical thing to do is 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 prayer. It is to consider the outcome of that, which Bonhoeffer would add, doing justice among human, human beings. And if Reading Bonhoeffer is great because, and this is kind of where I get to the second point for those who are listening, you're like, okay, I've deconstructed. I'm not a Christian. Uh, you know, I've, I've rejected Christianity. Where, where does this leave me as I see these people who claim to be Christians and I want nothing to do with that? If you read Bonhoeffer's theology, Bonhoeffer is choosing his words on purpose when he says, do, do justice among human beings. Bonhoeffer's not talking about doing justice for persecuted Christians alone. He's talking about human beings. Uh, he's talking about people. And and so for Bonhoeffer, the idea of an us versus them combat has been completely diffused and destroyed. Well, let me understand this. So how exactly does Bonhoeffer and his theology relate to this issue today of conspiratorial thinking among evangelicals? Yeah. You know, you asked, what, what can we do? You know, when we look at organizations like Moms for Liberty, that is quoting Hitler uh, in some of their materials, right, right alongside kind of advocating for, and by their rhetoric, by advocating for Jesus in the public square, what are we supposed to do? And uh, I, one of the things that Bonhoeffer's theology provides, uh, he, he made a statement that just kind of distills so much of what he was about into just a very, very concise uh, set of words. He said, uh, there are only two ways of being Christian today, prayer and doing justice among human beings. And, uh, you know, even if your listeners are kind of all across the spectrum, some might be deconstructed Christians, some might be deconstructed Christians who are now atheists. So I want to kind of acknowledge that and say that this, what Bonhoeffer is talking about here, I think has a lot of 
potency and potential for any of us who are looking at, you know, wh- what am I supposed to do in light of friends, family who, who, who buy into conspiracy theory, who believe conspiracy theory. And then also as we perceive it kind of taking and making real world effects in our society. And, and so I, I think as a practicing Christian, and for those of your listeners who, who might be, I think I don't want to discount Bonhoeffer's first statement is mm-hmm. to say uh, prayer. And because again, prayer is, if it's anything, it's an admission that I do not have power, uh, that I'm seeking communion with the divine, with God who does have power and not just power, but who uh, expresses his power by solidarity uh, with with provision for us in our need. And so um, prayer can be uh, a helpful starting point, uh, not just because it gets things done. I think evangelicalism and a lot of where we are as a society that has been so saturated with Christianity, it has done away with prayer though. It has said, I don't need prayer if I can be a political machine. I don't need prayer if I have power. And so we've lost this sense of dependency and communion, not just with God, but with each other that prayer um, makes possible. Uh, and so for those who maybe still are practicing Christians or are reconstructed or whatever categories of terminology, I, I don't want to just breeze by that because I think um, prayer is and can be uh, a valid starting point uh, and what might distinguish uh, Christians who see other people talking about Jesus and and say, well, that's that's not the God I know. I can't tell you how many times over the last three to five years uh, I have said, tell me about this God you don't believe in because chances are I don't believe in him either. Right. Yeah. I've heard that and, one before. And and I don't know where I heard it. It's not mine. Right. But um, but it's it it is such a helpful uh conversation because I, one of the things that I think is so prevalent in our situation right now uh is that we don't really have thick accounts of each other. As much as we might feel like we know moms for liberty or feel like we know other people uh who are a part of these organizations the the, the thing about labeling someone is that it fills in gaps in a story we've we haven't heard yet and that's a really difficult place to be because it's it's a whole lot easier to like associate someone with a label and say well I know you I know you completely but we've lost this sense of curiosity and the generosity that comes with getting to know someone uh and by doing unto them what we would want to do. I, I, you know, I would want to be called uh, a socialist, even if mm-hmm. the way that I talk about healthcare being in the UK to some Americans might sound socialist, right? I was like a socialist. <laughs> so, and that's, and that's not, to, that's just the, the first example that comes to my mind or, or liberal, right? Like, what do you mean when you say liberal? Uh, like we, we always want to get beyond that to who we really are and to be able to tell our story. And so I, that that would be the first. That's kind of coming out of the the prayer conversation. But the other thing is this: Bonhoeffer said that that prayer, and we how tired are we of hearing in the American context, you know, thoughts and prayers mm. in response to gun violence, yeah. and how much of the conspiracy theories? I mean, again, the government is coming for your guns is a conspiracy theory, right? Yeah, um, and it's a very potent one, and it organizes a huge amount of the Republican political base. So, thoughts and prayers are never enough. Uh, and as as Christians, that prayer is always meant, and this is Bonhoeffer's second is second statement is is prayer and doing justice among human beings. And uh, we have not followed that statement. The Christians in America who claim to be representing Jesus in advocating for gun rights and saying, well, maybe we just need to arm the teachers. All those political conclusions uh, are completely out of touch with any serious moral uh, development and reflection. It's all immediate political games. And, uh, and so when Bonhoeffer puts these two together, he's talking about a deep communion with each other and with God and about a deep, deep activism and political action. And, and for those of your listeners, right, you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that first part. I'm not a Christian. That's not me. I'm not going to pray. Um, yeah. Like I, the, 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 his second statement though, includes all of us in it. Cause he's talking about doing justice among human beings. Bonhoeffer, when you read his theology, it's so captivating to me because Bonhoeffer was not one to follow this us versus them way of thinking about how God sees the world. For Bonhoeffer, the world is the world. God loves the world. And and so when he says human beings, he's 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 being very particular. He's he's choosing his words because he means just human beings. That that doing justice among human beings to each other 
being responsible for one another, what would it look like if we started from there? And I know that might sound idealist, but I, but I also want to acknowledge the distance between the words I'm saying right now and the particular context of every single one of your listeners, right? I couldn't, I can't group your audience together and say, well, these are who, you know, these are all the people that listen that this just one person. No, like everyone listening has their own particular context, their own particular relationships and their own particular duties or responsibilities that that arise from that particular situation. And as much as we kind of spent the first part of our time talking about, man, what do we look at when we see the United States, this massive country going through something very bizarre and collective as a crisis together, it might almost be helpful to end on this note of saying, what if we what if we imagine responsibility in proximity? You watch you watch the news, we scroll through, we see these things. But what would responsibility look like in my own immediate life? And I think that that those two things go hand in hand. I remember the distinction when I had conservative Christians who were watching the Black Lives Matter events in Portland, right mm-hmm. where you were from, and they were treating everything going on in Fredericksburg, Virginia, like it was Portland. They were looking at African Americans in Fredericksburg, Virginia like what they were seeing flashing on their screens at night after dinner in their living room. That's not a real human being. And we and so the the, the what frustrated me in 2020 at that time was really the the the, the particularity, the specificity of mm-hmm. what was happening in my community. And 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 I think for our listeners regardless of your your faith or your your uh your belief system I think it is a something that all human beings, getting back to what Bonhoeffer is talking about, to consider is is what it looks like for me to be responsible where I am, and and of course that involves how do you define responsibility, how do you imagine that, and that that leads every listener right into not into certainty but into curiosity and into exploration, into asking questions of well how do I perceive other people, how how am I uh, inspired into action and and where where do I need to go to to seek justice among other human beings? And so I, I you know I think putting those two things together can be a, a helpful way to kind of cap off our time if only because doom scrolling is real in that yeah. it leads to a lot of uh, a lot of inaction, you know uh, and I, sometimes I wonder, you know how much I'm spending of my own imaginative energy by firing off the tweet. That actually might need to be something I sit with for a while, or maybe need to act on. Uh, and and I don't I don't know I don't want to short circuit what might be a trajectory altering provocation. You know, I, I, we we're provoked a lot on Twitter. <laughs> um, true, yeah. But but then provoked towards what? And I'm I'm figuring that out and asking that question. So I wonder what that might look like for those of us as we think about our own particular context. So there's a I lot think, to think about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I think I'll leave that there cuz I, you know, uh, there's a lot to say, but um I appreciate that question because the crisis that kind of is engulfing our country collectively, when do we actually feel it physically? When do we encounter it? And some of your listeners might. And I would I would I would be fascinated to hear some of those stories and those accounts. I think of my neighbor here who I walk by almost every day who has QAnon conspiracy theories plastered over his windows and his and in his yard right like that that mm-hmm. that i literally be as as material and physical as and particular as as i need to be as like well i don't know what engaging with my neighbor looks like but that's the material reality of where i'm at it's very difficult yeah the context where you're talking about conspiracy theories and then the other angle we didn't mention with QAnon, the whole cultic aspect of it right you know there's a whole thing i, I believe it's a cult basically because of the way it works, the way it operates, it's very attractive on that level. So it's a very difficult thing. I definitely applaud you for your work, man. You've got you've got a lot of work ahead of you, Jared. I do. <laughs> yeah, I, you've got a lot of work. The more I think about it, I think, my God, uh, I I wouldn't want to trade places with you. I, I love your research. I love what you're doing. Well, I was going to ask you too. How can people find you if they want to get a hold of you on social media? What's the best place to do it? Sure. Yeah. Um, I am, I am active on Twitter. Uh, and so I'd love to connect with people there just at Jared, like the jewelry store, J A R E D. Uh, and then Stacy S T A C Y at Jared Stacy. 
uh, if you want to, I'm also on Instagram. Um, if you want to find me on there, it's same name, but um, just hit my middle initial in between it, M as in Manchester. So Jared M. Stacy, uh, and I'm on Instagram there. And uh, I think those are probably the, the two problems. I, I write a little bit, so I have a sub stack um, and also just have a website where I, I kind of migrate some of my sub stack stuff over uh, if it's a, something I want to post over there. So those are probably the, the four, four quickest and easiest ways to find me. Best way to get hold of you. Okay. I'll put some links in the show notes as well. If people want to contact you, but I think we should definitely continue this conversation another time yeah. when you've maybe finished your Viva, done your research and all that's finished. You've got your doctorate. I want to hear how it all went down and what your sort of conclusions were in the end. So I'll touch base with you again if you want to chat again. Yeah, sounds great. I'd love I'd love that. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jared. Um, nice talking to you. I will see you again. Sounds good. See you, buddy.